Hey everyone, and welcome back to the Yankee Air Pirate Podcast. I'm Pat Stratton, and I'll be your host. Last time on the podcast, we had the opportunity to sit down with my father and hear him describe his experiences from January 1967 when he was shot down over North Vietnam and taken prisoner. He also described the next day or so as the Vietnamese transported him from his shoot-down site up to Hanoi, where they deposited him to the Wallow Prison, better known by some as the Hanoi Hilton. Last we heard, they had moved him into cell number seven, the torture chamber. And that's where we're going to pick up the conversation today. During the conversation, we are going to be talking about torture. He's going to be describing some experiences to you, although I'll tell you, He's going to give you a sanitized, cleaned-up version, the PG version of it, if you will. We saw no reason to get into the gory details. If you're a friend and you want that, you may just have to take a trip to Atlantic Beach, Florida and sit down with the Yankee Air Pirate with a cold beer and hear from him yourself. But make no mistake about it. The North Vietnamese communists in that prison were nothing short of brutal, sadistic, barbaric individuals. When my father was in cell number seven, the torture chamber, there were only three things there. My father, God, and the devil. Nothing else. But what's so impressive to me as I sit here and I listen to the stories from the 60s and 70s that my father tells is his attitude. He never loses his sense of humor And that's what makes him the man he is. And that's why I love him so much. And I'm so proud of him. So let's get right back to the story. Cell number seven, the torture chamber, Wallow Prison. Always good to be this place. I, I guess you're, you're coming back for number two, so I guess that means I didn't screw things up too bad the first time. Actually, your brother Michael said you're a superb interviewer. And I <laughs> said, well, why don't you tell him instead of me? And he said, well, I don't want him to get a big head. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, one thing, uh, after you and I talked last time, I went back and I, I've done a lot of thinking and reflecting on this. Um, we now have talked about January 5th, 1967, the day you were shot down, uh, talked about the journey to get you to Hanoi from the, the, the peasants that picked you up, the militia turned you over to the, the regular army, uh, Vietnamese army. They delivered you to the Wallow prison, uh, a place you're going to spend the next six and a half years. And... Uh, I started thinking to myself, how did this all come about? And what I hear from the message you gave me is you were using 10 to 15-year-old weapons, Korean War vintage weapons that were out of date, were known to not function well, but our government saw fit to give those to you anyway. And that was... that. Uh, summed up your demise. Uh, And I'm just curious uh, if that ever weighed on your mind when you're sitting there in Vietnam for six and a half years. 
Well, you know, everything is relative. It certainly did. I, I don't mind going down by the lowest bidder, but when you give me outdated ordinance, it sort of upsets me. But they were also carrying World War II and Korean War bombs. And sometimes those things would go off right underneath the aircraft. So uh, I felt lucky that it was just the rocket. It could have been a 2,000-pound bomb. But you're absolutely right. Uh, they were fighting the war on the cheap, trying to have guns and butter at home and get away with a uh, lowest bidder war over in Southeast Asia. Yeah, and that's... So I think there's a lesson there right there is if you're going to put our men and women in harm's way, uh, we owe them nothing, nothing but the best in the technology that we have available. Trying to go cheap is, is never the right answer, ever. Well, if you want your troops to give 100%, then you have to give the troops 100%. Yep, yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, and then the, the other thing that really stuck in my mind, the last thing uh, from our, our conversation last time, what was the war the way the war was fought um it just did during back to world war ii for example world war ii was fought with a lot of uh, ferocity by the not only the american fighting man but the public at home that there is a lot of support for the troops and for the mission but the vietnam war um the american fighting man didn't really get control of his own destiny or her own destiny. Um, the politicians at home were picking all your targets and you weren't able to make any strategic or tactical decisions on the front lines, from what I understand. Well, President Johnson has quoted in one of his biographies that he wouldn't give the Air Force permission to bomb an outhouse without his permission. And in fact, they would release McNamara and... Lyndon Johnson from the basement of the White House over lunch would go through targets and release about three that were worth your life per month. And the rest of the time we were chasing uh, bicycles and water buffalo and uh, peasants. And and was there any particular reason that that the government wasted so much of your time over there? If you're there on station on an aircraft carrier, why wouldn't they send you after as many strategic targets as you could handle? Neither McNamara nor Lyndon Johnson understood uh, the Vietnamese people nor the Oriental mind, and they thought they could treat him like a bunch of hoods with a carrot-and-stick approach, put a little bit of pressure, and they would bend. They didn't realize that uh, the Vietnamese people, the Chinese people, have been living in a state of warfare for four to 6,000 years, killing each other off. And we were the amateurs, they were the professionals. Yeah, that, that's what it seems to me. I mean, even though we had much better weapons and technology, uh, they were better war fighters. Uh, and not, what I mean by that is uh, the, the, their, their government, what, they knew how to fight it right from the top down. Um, our government never gave you the opportunity to really fight it the way you wanted to fight it. Well, when Richard Nixon came in, he gave General Creighton Abrams the latitude to put together whatever was remaining of the alliance with the South Vietnamese. And in fact, uh, he defeated 
the North Vietnamese regular army in the spring offensive of 1972 uh, destroyed them. I think that was the third time we had won the war, but the politicians were too stupid to see it. Yeah, wow. Well, I, I guess the politics of war, that, that, that we could cover that in an entirely separate segment at some point in the future, and I think I would like to come back and do that with you. Uh, but but for now, uh, let's get back to your story. And um, you're you're in the Wallow prison, and uh, you're sitting there, having been shot down the day before because you volunteered to fly a mission for your best friend, Mike Astotian. Uh Did you ever think about what happened to Mike? Um, and can you tell us what did happen to him? Uh, I know you learned years later what happened to him. Uh, several weeks after uh, you were shot down. Well, Mike was one of the most popular guys on the ship, and everybody that got shot down after me would ask, uh, where's Mike? Where is Mike? Is he in the system? And by that, I figured out finally that he had been shot down. And it turned out that, uh, typical of Mike, he asked me to volunteer for a hop. Well, he turns around and volunteered to take a hop of a nugget, a brand-new kid, we just joined the squadron. Mike had been shot down the day before, it turns out, and usually you get it the next day off, a big deal. But he volunteered to take this kid's hop because he didn't want him to die. It was an iron hand flying down the throat of a SAM missile type of mission. Required a lot of talent and a lot of guts. And he got shot down on that mission and flew inverted into the water and was missing in action and then presumed dead. Can, can you explain for everybody what, what is an Iron Hand mission? What does that mean? The Iron Hand mission is designed whereby you try to get a surface-to-air missile site to paint your aircraft with their radar. You're carrying a weapon that can ride a, wa- a radar beam. As soon as they paint your aircraft, you turn directly towards the electronic signal, and you fire a Shrike missile, which homes in on the electronic signal coming from the SAM site. And if they're not smart enough to turn off the electricity, they end up being destroyed. But to do that, it takes a great deal of courage and nerves of steel to fly at a missile that would be coming at you at at Mach 2. Yeah, for sure. It sounds like it. Well, so... I sure would have liked to have met Mike Astotian. I'm I'm sorry I never had that opportunity, and it sounds like uh, he was certainly a hero. He received the Medal of Honor posthumously. Okay. All right. Well, so let me take you back to Wallow Prison now. Uh, It's uh, January 5th. You were shot down. They started more than a 24-hour march with you through various different means, including the militia, the army. They finally got you delivered to the Wallow prison. And um, you explained to us, uh, I believe, last week on the last episode, they threw you in a uh, chamber, uh, which you later learned was uh, cell number seven, the torture chamber, and they just let you lie there on the concrete floor. Um, What was your condition uh, at the time you got there, were, were you uh, wounded seriously at that point? How were you feeling? Well, first of all, I was uh, 
how, how was I feeling? I was hyper alert, wondering what was going to come next. Uh, I was feeling hungry. I was feeling thirsty, and thirst can really dig into you when uh, you haven't had water for at least 24 hours. Um, I was checking out the room and couldn't figure out why it was it had a knobby surface. It looked like people had thrown cement at the uh, at the walls, and obviously it was meant to attenuate sound. Uh, and I eventually figured that out. I also figured out why there was a hook in the ceiling, and why there was uh, brownish, rusty spots on the tile floor underneath me. So I was sort of checking the place out, try to get a little rest. I think probably I got a couple of hours maybe of half asleep before the guards finally came in and woke me up. Wow. So did, did you know that it was the torture chamber that you were spending time in, or did you come to figure that out later? No, I, I knew within four hours that it was the torture chamber, but at that time, I, I really, it was a puzzle to me why there would be a hook in the ceiling, why there would be knobs all over the flat surfaces. And it, it sort of was a confusing factor. I knew that I was in for a military interrogation because that's what I would do if I just captured somebody. And I was expecting to see some military people come in, and there were two very slight uh, Vietnamese uh, they looked to me like about 16 years old, and they sort of were uh, effeminate in their approach, came prancing in, uh, fluffed their behinds like bunny rabbits, and sat down behind the table. And it sure didn't look like uh, the cream of the crop of military intelligence to me, so I was still puzzled at that point. When they came into the room... Uh that first thing that morning, were you tied up at that point? Did you have shackles on, or were you just laying there with your arms and hands free? When they threw me into the cell, I had uh, my arms were tied behind my back. The ropes were on my biceps, and they, that's the way they had marched me up, leaving my hands free so that when I fell, I could you know, ward off any blow to my head or something like that. Uh, the only wound I had was on my ankle. They had run a 55-gallon drum over my uh, my ankle, and I don't know how much damage that was. Um, the guard came in just before these two interrogators. He took the rope off my arms. There was a, an ash, uh, a wastebasket-sized can in the corner, black, uh, rusting, indicated that's where I would be doing my toilet and pointed to a chair and sat me down. When the two interrogators came in, and told me to stand, and then the guard yelled salute, and I figured, why not? So I gave him a highball, and I immediately got a rifle butt over the back of the head, and the guard yelled at me, bow. Now, it turns out a salute in our prison system was a, about a 45-degree bow to chickens, ducks, uh, washerwomen, ladies, and high-ranking officers. So that was my first introduction to military discipline in the prison system. Okay. And, and so did they get right into any serious torture with you during that first day, during that first session? Uh, how, how did they approach that? Well, you've got to break it up. The first part of the morning, 
Now, this is looking back on it. The first part of the morning, these two guys were in there to break past the code of conduct uh, that was basically our rule for conducting ourselves in a prison situation. And in that code of conduct, it said you'd only give your name, rank, serial number, date of birth, uh, and that's all you were required to do. Uh, so that's what I gave them. No matter what they ask, I'd give my name, my rank, my serial number, and my date of birth, and then shut up. And they would ask an, uh, another question. Now, many of the questions they asked, it was obvious they had my ID card, they had my dog tags, they knew what my name was, but we weren't supposed to say anything. So their job apparently was to get past that code of conduct to see if they could talk me into uh, saying more than that. After about maybe a half hour of that, they started to tell me that I was a Yankee air pirate, that I was uh, guilty of war crimes, and uh, there was no sale there. And then they came and they tried to tell me uh, in about two hours' time the history of Vietnam, all 4,000 years of it. And, and what, what do you figure the purpose? I saw that in one of the stories you wrote. Why are they trying to educate you on the history of the, uh, Vietnam? They're trying to convert you. They're trying to convert everybody. This is, they call their prisons, even when they imprison their own people, re-education camps. And they pride themselves that they're going to turn you into, a, if not a hardline communist, a fellow traveler, and get you to appreciate the justice of their cause. And their party line was that Ho Chi Minh, their president, was just like George Washington. Uh, their declaration of independence. Their uh, constitution starts with our Declaration of Independence, and it does. Uh, our CIA came into North Vietnam in World War II when they were fighting the Japanese and saved Ho Chi Minh's life, if you can figure that one out. Is that fact? I, that I is a fact. Okay. All three of the things are the facts. Okay. I, I, didn't, I never knew that. Well, they try to get you uh, allied with them or provide you a crutch for cooperating with them. And when you wouldn't, then the idea was to try to get behind this uh, Superman complex that most American aviators came in with. Well, so did you have, as a lieutenant commander, so you're, you're an 04 when, you're, when, when you got shot down, did you have any strategic information, military information that would be valuable to the Vietnamese in the war effort? Well, I didn't and I didn't. Most, let me clear that up. Lieutenant commanders are basically junior officers. And junior officers, at least in a Navy air wing, don't know anything. They're not given any information. Remember the targets were coming out of the White House? Yeah. And they were filtered through uh, Commander-in-Chief Pacific in Hawaii and then came through uh, General Westmoreland down in Saigon and then eventually got up to the ship and would get that information maybe at midnight for a dawn launch. That's about the earliest we'd get it. So we didn't know anything, and we were just too busy trying to maintain the aircraft. We're flying two and a half hops a day. So if you take a look at our routine and stuff, we really had nothing of value for them. Now, what I had, they didn't want, and it was a source of amazement to me. I had just spent two years on the uh, 
single integrated operations plan, in other words, selecting all the nuclear targets that the U.S. Armed Forces had in their portfolio. But they didn't know that. Well, uh, the public affairs officer of the Strategic Air Command in Omaha, Nebraska, announced to the Omaha paper that I used to work there and what my job was. So uh, if they didn't know, it was only because their people didn't happen to send that information to them. So when you say people send information to them, are you implying that uh, they had spies in the United States that would look at our newspapers, watch our evening news, and send relevant material over to Vietnam? Was that happening? Well, it was happening, and they didn't need spies. Does the name Jane Fonda ring a bell to you? Oh, yeah. Yeah, David Dellinger. There's a, a whole list of people. Uh, that were anti-war and giving aid and comfort to the enemy over there, and they would send them Aviation Week. They'd send them trade papers. They'd send them newspaper clippings. They would send them all kinds of information. And I found in a couple of places people actually bragging about uh, how well they did for the North Vietnamese Communist Movement. Wow. Okay. Well, let's go back back to Cell 7 now at, at Wallow, and uh, you're having conversations with the, with the Vietnamese, uh, and they're giving you these history lessons. How long was it before some serious torture started? How, was, was it a matter of hours or days before it got bad? Oh, Pat, it was a matter of hours. They, 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 they were running it— Torture, interrogation, all that is labor-intensive. And they had shot down a few guys right after me, and so they have to process all of these people. Um, I'd say about three hours, they finally figured out I wasn't going to buy their propaganda. I wasn't going to go beyond name, rank, serial number, and date of birth. They walked out, and a Vietnamese enlisted man came in. We called him Vegetable Vic. He wore a pith helmet that had camouflage, if you believe that, all kinds of bushes on his pith helmet, but he always wore it even indoors. They also called him straps and bars because that were the primary uh, tools of his torture. And he came in and just trussed me up, and we called it the, the rope trick. It was a method of um, putting stress on your body to uh, cause you suffocation, disjoint your your joints, cut off circulation to your arms, induce, basically induce pain uh, gradually or quickly. He could play almost like a violin. So that, that scar you have there on your arms, um, is that from the rope trick, as, as you call it? Right. The, it, uh, one uh, rope was tied around one arm, and there's a very small scar on my right arm. That was the stator. And then it would move through this arm as he pulled the arms in together. He put his, your arms behind your back. Your wrists were locked into uh, solid handcuffs, uh, wrists back to back. Now, if you do that, uh, stand up and do that, you find out that your elbows bow out. But if he uses those ropes, he can bring those elbows in to almost touch. In the process of doing that, he can ride your uh, arms at the shoulders just about to disjoint back and forth. He compresses your rib cage and causes your suffocation. 
uh, and then you can wrap it around your neck and hoist up your arms a bit. So if you drop your arms, you're strangling yourself. And he can have a cigarette while you uh, put in some of that pressure. So how is he doing this? Is he doing it with the hook that's on the ceiling? Is that involved in this? The, uh, or is that different? No, the, what he would do is um, take a, another rope and put it to the, the rope that was connecting your two biceps. He'd fling that over the hook in the ceiling, and then he'd pull you up so that you were resting on your toes, and you were hanging by your, your elbows a very contorted position and an extremely painful position. Yeah, I could only imagine. It, it sounds so I, terrible. I, it appeared to me that I, I, I was doing that for two hours, and I bet I wasn't more than 20 minutes. I have no idea of, of, of time. At this point, uh, fighting the pain and uh, trying to keep my wits about me, was I wasn't about to analyze things. Um, so he... Uh, I finally cried uncle and let me sit there in the ropes for about another 15 minutes, I guess just to prove to me that I was a wimp and couldn't take it. He took me out, and so then uh, the two young Vietnamese came in, and they started asking me benign questions that they picked up off of the stuff they collected, my name, my religion, and I was answering those questions now because I knew that they had access to it. And then finally, I can't remember the exact questions, but they came to something that I considered to be sensitive and didn't want to give them. And uh, looking back, I'm waiting for 15 minutes to get out of the ropes. I figured maybe I was a wimp, and maybe they really weren't that serious about it. So I gave them name, rank, serial number, date of birth. They didn't even bother waiting around on that one. They just stood up and left. Vegetable Vic came back in. Trust me up like a turkey again. And I bet that uh, it seemed like it was a half hour. I bet it wasn't even 10 minutes. And I was crying uncle again. And the difficulty was I was trained in survival school that if you're a real red-blooded American, it's just discomfort and, you know, and it hurts a little bit, but a red-blooded American can take this. And only a, a pussycat would give more than name, rank, serial number, date of birth. So I had no plan B. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you about that. So you, as a pilot, went through SEER school, survival, evasion, resistance, escape school, prior to going on cruise, just like all pilots do. Do you feel that they trained you appropriately to prepare you for what you were going to go through in North Vietnam? No. The... Um I went through the school in 59, a whole other story, and went through again in 66. In 1959, a third-class petty officer was running the interrogation phase. He didn't like me. He cupped his hand, boxed me on the ear, and broke my eardrum. I came back in 66. The same bloody guy was there. He's now a first-class petty officer, and he didn't like me still. And he cupped his hand and popped me on the ear and broke my eardrum again. That's the only training I had that made sense because the Vietnamese, in working me over, popped my eardrum also. So I got practice in that through survival school. <laughs> All right. So um, is that school the same today, or do they teach it a little bit differently based on uh, the Vietnam War? 
One of the good things that we accomplished in the prison system, and someday we'll talk about it, was we managed to get a very junior enlisted man out real early uh, before we were released, and he came back giving them factual knowledge about what was going on in interrogation and stuff. Fortunately, they believed him. They changed the syllabus. He actually went to work for them as a civil servant instructor. Well, that's the Doug Hegdahl story. The Doug Sprint Hegdahl. An American hero for sure. And, and we're going to talk about him for an entire episode as a standalone topic. Uh, that's how much he deserves. It, it, did, it did change, but then, of course, as peace came about, uh, talking to Doug maybe 10 years ago, he had uh, retired from the civil service, and he was complaining that the syllabus, again— to be politically correct, was slipping, and that he had gone back as a guest interrogator, and uh, the new commanding officer of the Siri school, she told him that he was too hard on the students, and that he was so not, somebody, to, not to be invited back. Doug Hegdahl was not to be invited back. Doug Hegdahl was not to be invited back. And, and who, who's making this statement? The, the, the new uh, skipper of the North Island Survival School, she's the one that levied that. I hope she didn't make Admiral. Well, she obviously never saw combat, so... Uh. Yeah. All right. Well, so you're, you're in, uh, in uh, Chamber 7, the torture cell still. How many days did you spend there before they moved you to another cell? I think it was about five days. I was three and a half days, uh, well, I was four days. I was a day being moved up. So starting January 6th, I was there that morning. So it was four days more. So five days from shoot down until I was put into a cell in the uh, in max security section. And, and by, by the time that they put you in, into a cell in the max security uh, section, Removing you from the torture cell, um, how often had they been torturing you? What, was it an everyday affair in there? After I got into the max security section, the political arm of the people took over, which is a whole other story on uh, the Life magazine bowing picture and uh, confession routine. They were after something different. So they would come in the middle of the night. They'd come in the middle of the morning. You never know. They'd haul you back to cell seven. And then they would go through the ropes. Then they'd go through what currently is known as enhanced interrogation techniques of uh, denying you sleep, uh, putting you in, in, in totally uncomfortable positions for two or three uh, hours to two or three days, kneeling on broomsticks, kneeling on... Uh, uh, rice beatings by the rifle butt beatings with a felt, um, fan belt beatings with bamboo dong sticks uh, uh, an infinite variety of ways to cause pain right but what was this guy vegetable Vic as you called him what was he he was the main torturer so to speak correct he, he was the guy that was a specialist in the ropes. Okay. And um, almost anybody else would, would whistle up uh, 
this other amateur I call enhanced stuff. That could be anybody who would institute that on you. Well, well, you've made the comment before uh, on Vegetable Vic that when, when he was torturing you, that he displayed no personal animosity, pleasure, or displeasure. He was just kind of robotic in, in the way he went about his job. I can't imagine any human being doing something like that to someone else and not showing some form of emotion. Well, I understand what you're saying, but I, I'll also uh, tell you that you can disassociate, which I learned how to do in interrogation, prison, and torture, and stuff like that. And it appeared to me he just went into an altered state. And and he was someplace else. He was just doing a job, actually. He was very efficient. He wasn't bumbling. Uh, he, he was uh, very practical. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he, he just took no delight. There was one guy who had a, we call him the walleye. He had one eye that would go off about 45 degrees. He, he was obviously was getting some sort of sexual pleasure out of watching you be tortured. Um, but he was an officer directing it. He wasn't actually doing it. Most of the enlisted men we were talking about, like Vegetable Vic, were not personally uh, involved in causing us pain. They had nothing personal against us. There, there were two classes of guards that we had in prison. One appeared to be people who had been shot up in the war and were back on sort of uh, shore duty, you know, almost R&R, rest and relaxation for them. And others were draftees, obviously right off the farm. So... When did they, uh, after five days, they moved you and you had been uh, getting tortured uh, several different times and they, they, before they moved you to the new room in, in the high security area, had any Americans been able to contact you by that point? My first contact was probably uh, two days after I was in the high security area. Okay, so while you were in cell number seven, you were not able to make contact with any other American? I had no contact with any um, American since my brief on the ship. <laughs> okay, and um, so let, let's back up for, for a minute. You talked about the appearance of the cell, the 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 way it was covered and it was soundproofed. Why did they want it to be soundproof like that? Why would they care about having the other POWs in the camp hearing the screaming of, of a, another pilot being tortured? Well, first of all, the, the room itself, uh, it was a joke because the door, the entrance way, sort of double French doors, was not soundproofed, leaked like a sieve, light, sound, and everything else. So it was, in, it was ineffective. But direct answer to your question was the Wallow Prison, Maison Centrale, was uh, a set of office spaces for the political army. It was a set of apartments for high rollers who had their wives and children in there. It had a barracks section, 
It had a civilian female prisoner section. It had a section with Vietnamese, uh, South Vietnamese captured soldiers that had been infiltrating into the country. Uh, so it was a complex with a diverse population, and I could see why they wouldn't want to have a guy being tortured yelling out so their kids could hear it, or that some farm boy that was just bought in for indoctrination would be hearing it. Right. So what what did you think about the new accommodations that they gave you when they moved you from cell number seven, the torture chamber, into the high security area? Um, was it bigger? Was it uh, more comfortable? Or what were your impressions of that move? Well, first of all, it was a, a relief to get out of the interrogation torture chamber. So any place would be good. The cell was crummy. There were two cement bunks that were built in to the, not bunks, pads, sleeping pads. And there was about a yard of space between the two pads that you could walk back and forth in. The pads were about maybe five feet five long, and there was maybe another six inches between the end of the pad and the wall that the door was in. Each of the pads had uh, stocks at the base of them, and fortunately I was never put in stocks. A lot of our guys were. There was a high window on the back wall that was boarded over. Um, now, this I was down in January. It's cold, and I still didn't have any clothes. I still had a T-shirt and boxer shorts. Yeah. So you're talking about 40 degrees, cement, Um so they moved you over there. They moved you into, into this new section. Still at that point in time, no communication with any Americans. But within a couple of days, um, an, another pilot was able to make contact with you for the first time. So I think that's a good place to uh, take a break for today. And we'll come back next week. And I'd really like to talk to you more about um, how the communication process started and who first got in touch with you because I think that's another really neat story that I've heard you tell many times and I think it's very interesting and other people would like to hear it. So thank you very much for sitting with me for another session today. I really appreciate it and I'm always impressed at how uh, positive you are and you, you never hold a grudge. And I think it would be really easy to hold a grudge about this whole experience. I've never seen you do that. Never. Not once. So um, I really admire you for that. And I love you. And thanks for doing this again. Love you a lot, pal. God bless you. All right. Thank you.